we're continuing from chapter 3 into chapter 4 with the Apostle's warning to us this morning. That is the warning to the church and a call to persevering faith. Psalm 95 continues to be the backdrop that he's using to quote, again, to the church of the New Testament this morning, to Redeemer Community Church, through the Spirit, through the Word, to us this morning, is this warning from Psalm 95. And we talked about it last week, just by brief review, how, again, this is not a simple retelling of Israel's history. He's not just simply sharing with us what our fathers did in the wilderness at some point and looking down on them. Rather, Psalm 95 for chapter 3 and chapter 4 continues to be a contemporary warning to the church of Jesus Christ this morning, to us. As I said, just a little kind of tongue-in-cheek last week, we are not in reading the Old Testament Scriptures, reading someone else's mail. And that's important for us to really remember. In the unity of the Bible is the unity of the Bible's message. And as we look at the history of Israel, high points, low points, prophets, priests, and kings, we're acknowledging the unity of the Bible's message in the fallen condition of mankind, in the rescuing power of a Savior who is to come. The call in that gospel message to repent and believe, and then a continuance in the faith to persevere by faith in that which you have confessed. This is the unity of the Bible's message. And so he's using Psalm 95 that way, about a warning that we too must persevere and not fall away. The warning then gives way to a consequence, as we looked last week, that everyone was familiar with the fact that those who denied Moses' leadership, again, we're talking Psalm 95, going back, and Psalm 95 is using Exodus 17. So we're really talking about Moses' leadership at that time in the wilderness community. Those who looked at Moses as that God-given leader, and then they recognized maybe he's not the God-given leader anyway. He's not leading the way we want to follow, and let's threaten insurrection. Perhaps we ought to stone him, get rid of him in return. So again, a rejection. And Moses says, if you remember from last week, Exodus 7, Moses put it not upon himself that they were rejecting. They were not testing me. And he did have his moments, as you know, Moses had his moments where indeed he felt the pressure. But he recognized they're testing the Lord. Those who were being tested flipped the test and said, you be tested to God. You prove your faithfulness. And that's where Moses says, this is what's occurring in the people of God. An attitude of judgment. You prove yourself. And Moses is saying, by that, they wandered in the wilderness an entire generation. And they died as a consequence of that. Becoming God's judge. Rather than God's servants, they died in the wilderness. An entire generation. And there was a promise out in front of them, you remember. The promise they came out of Egypt and they were heading towards the promised land, right? Where God's presence was going to uniquely dwell among them, bringing never experienced peace, 
and security. And yet they died, never having achieved that, because they put the Lord to the test. This is a contemporary warning to the church of Jesus Christ, not an event simply that happened in time, and we look down on it. He is using it here, the apostle in Hebrews is using it here as leverage to the church of the new covenant. That we too must be faithful servants, lest we put him to the test as his judge and die like our fathers outside the promised land. This is how Psalm 95 and Exodus 17 are working this morning to warn you and me, believers of the new covenant, and urge us into perseverance. The application to each of us is quite clear. That the consequence to Israel of the old covenant was devastating, right? So consider the old covenant. Here I'm referencing the Old Testament. So Israel... As I referenced already, they died outside the land from following Moses' leadership. You recall, we've already been introduced to who is the church's leader in the new covenant, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we agree, the consequences for Israel of the old covenant were devastating, were they not? Devastating. They died outside the land that they were on their way toward. They died. They didn't make it. An entire generation of faithless servants who put God to the test died before entering the land. So he warns the church, how much more will the consequences be for the church of the new covenant who is not turning their back on Moses, but turning their back on Jesus Christ? How much more deadly will the consequences be for the church of the new covenant compared to that of the church under the old covenant? The language of much more, if you remember for a section now or so through Hebrews, in chapter 3, we began at the very first portion arguing against, he made his argument against the glory of Moses compared to the much more glory of Jesus Christ. The language there is much more. Now, the much more, how much Moses has glory, it's not antagonistic between Moses and Jesus. Moses had glory as a servant in the house, remember? So we're not throwing Moses under the bus. Moses led the people of God as an appointed leader and indeed was a tremendous leader. A few weeks ago, I talked about how he's kind of that point in the house of the stained glass window, right? He gets glory, he gets attention, and we recognize his presence and prestige. But how much more is Jesus compared to Moses as a son rather than a servant? Now, the language of much more is a consideration for us just briefly this morning. I want to speak to you about what is the nature of the old covenant compared to the nature of the promises of God in the New Covenant. 
So again, when I say Old Covenant and New Covenant, here I'm explaining to you as a listener, we're considering what the writer is saying to us about Moses and Jesus in a comparative way. Moses had glory in the Old Covenant. There is glory. How much more glory in the New Covenant is a comparison of Old and New Covenants. I don't know how often you consider what is the nature of the promises of God in the Old Covenant. What is the nature of it? How is it functioning? What is its glory? And then how much more glory are the promises of God in the New Covenant, in the New Testament that I read? So let's just take a moment and let's compare the promises of God which are glorious in both covenants, that of the Old and the New Covenant. So I just want to explain to you the glory of God's promises under the Old Covenant. How do they function? That is, if you were Israel under the Old Covenant, coming out of Egypt in the Promised Land, you're hearing the promises of what God is to do for you and where He is taking you. How do you relate to those promises? How are they being shown to you under the Old Covenant? Let me explain it this way. As we consider again, how much more glory does the New Covenant have than the Old? Well, what was the glory in the Old Covenant and the promises of God? The promises of God under the Old Covenant witnessed to the eternal through the physical and temporal. That is the nature of the promises of God under the Old Covenant. They witnessed to the eternal the promises of God given to Israel. Witnessed to the eternal through the physical and temporal. What do I mean? Again, why are we even asking this question? Because how much more glory is experienced in the new covenant. Well, how much glory was in the old covenant? Well, the promises that were given to Israel in the old covenant witnessed to the eternal through the physical and temporal. What do I mean by that again? Consider two examples just briefly. Redemption. Do you remember redemption for Israel? Right there as he's pointing out, those who died in the wilderness, they experienced the promise of God. Redemption. Physically and temporally, didn't they? They were brought out of Egypt, brought out of bondage. They were redeemed as the people of God. And that picture of what you read in the book of Exodus, this great coming out of 1.4 million, possibly, that's kind of the range, 1.4 million Israelites coming out of the Exodus experience of slavery and bondage. It's witnessing in the Old Covenant, it's witnessing to the eternal. This freedom from slavery, this freedom from one who stands over the people of God and despises them, this is witnessing to the eternal. But it is being experienced in the physical and temporal. It's a picture. Redemption physically in the Old Covenant is a picture of a greater reality that is spiritual and eternal. But the physical is witnessing to that. Let me give you another example. So redemption is one example where the promises of God in that old covenant witness to the eternal. They speak greater realities. They're whispering his name. In these physical realities of being set free, it's speaking to a greater spiritual reality. Redemption as one of them. 
under the Old Covenant. Consider a second one, exile. Exile under the Old Covenant is yet again a physical experience for the people of God. It is a temporal one where it lasts for a season of time. And it creates in the people of God during exile a longing for what? Rest. Exile creates in the people of God. That is, it witnesses to a place of security and rest. You see, these are the promises of God under the Old Covenant. This is what Moses was doing. He was leading the people of God faithfully. He was witnessing to them about the realities of eternity. God will redeem. And you have a picture of it through redemption, through exodus. You're coming out from among those who are enslaving you. This is a picture of something greater. Exile, banished, without security, finding no place of rest, is a physical, temporal reality that speaks to an eternal reality. It whispers the need for a homeland. It speaks to the need for peace and security. You learn that physically and temporally under the Old Covenant that there has to be something greater. This is the comment that you get to in a moment with Joshua, right? Did you hear the text read for you earlier this morning considering that? Do you remember the people of God went into the land under Joshua's leadership? Do you remember? They went into the land that God had intended for them. And they had rest. They weren't in exile. They weren't without a homeland. They were there. But do you hear the comment of the new covenant? It was witnessed to, but if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoke of another day later on. Do you see? Yeah, you have rest. A temporal experience of it. A physical experience of it. But this temporal and physical experience of rest is not all that God intended for you. If it was to the church of the new covenant, all God intended for you was to experience a nice bolt lock on your front door to give you rest. Or an economy that is just right where we need it. And jobs are everywhere, and we're all happy, and there's this big change and turnaround. That could be confused here with rest. That could be confused here with peace. That could be confused here with security. That's how the writer is speaking to the Old Covenant. We're home. We're here. Erect a statue. Remember it. Teach it to our children. We're home. Everything's going to work out. No. Time out. If that was the rest God intended, Joshua would not have been speaking of a rest to come. Under the old covenant, 
physical and temporal promises that were experienced still spoke to greater realities to come. Compare that nature of the promises of God under the Old Covenant, that which witnessed to the eternal through physical and temporal realities. Consider that by contrast to that of the New Covenant. Because remember, we're exploring how much more glory does Jesus have and how much more devastating are the consequences to the church of the New Covenant if we, like Israel under the Old Covenant, turn our backs and go away. We're not giving up on the physical and temporal blessings. We're giving up on the eternal inheritance we have in Christ. Some died in the wilderness. We will die forever. Because there's much more glory in the new covenant that you belong to in Christ than that which was present in the old covenant under Moses. This serves as a warning to the church, a call to the church to urge us on in perseverance, recognizing the glory of what we have in Jesus Christ. Don't walk away from Him. Don't find your job more important than Him. Don't find it to be of ill consequence of any at all if you're with the people of God on the Lord's day. If it works, it works. If I have enough energy, I'll be there. I'll look at the text occasionally if I'm so inspired. And if not, I won't. No, 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 no. Don't, don't walk away. Don't walk away. How much more glory do you have as a new covenant believer? As one hidden in Christ. And that's how he's using Psalm 95 to urge us on. So how does the Old Covenant promises of God relate to the New Covenant promises of God where we find ourselves as New Covenant believers in Christ? What is the reality of the promises of God in our lives? Well, the promises of God in the New Covenant are the spiritual and eternal fulfillment of the temporal and physical promises of God under the Old Covenant. So they relate to one another. So that which was experienced or promised in time and physically tangible that spoke to a greater reality, we stand in the fulfillment. We stand in the reality. We stand in it. We share in it by faith in Christ. We live in an age of fulfillment. We confessed that this morning, didn't we? That Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's fulfillment. That He rules and reigns right now over a kingdom of those who have died already and come to life to have been raised in Him. And blessed are they, Revelation 20, who share in the first resurrection. He reigns over them. They experience Him. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. Jesus now reigns. The Son of God has risen. Fulfillment. And he will return to gather the people. We live in the age of fulfillment. Whereas 
our brothers and sisters of the old covenant lived in an age of promise. It's coming. It's moving forward in the redeeming plan of God. It's developing, and we see it in the sacrificial system. We hear it in the prophets that are proclaiming one who is to come. We've experienced a little bit of it through the kings. And we've experienced a bit of rest that gave us a deep desire for a more permanent rest. And then the Messiah has come. He has fulfilled all the expectations from that old covenant. And now all of those promises are a reality for those who are hidden in him. So the promises of God to us are spiritual and eternal that the temporal and physical have given way to. So the writer says, Therefore, there remains a time for the people of God to enter in to God's final rest. Right? Because we're not home yet. Right? This is not the new heaven and the new earth, just in case you were wondering. It's going to be better than this, promise. So he exhorts us, those who share in Christ, in the age of fulfillment, don't give up and turn around. Persevere. There remains yet a day of rest that is in front of us. Keep going. Let's look at the text just for a few moments this morning as we consider how much more does the church of the new covenant experience in the blessings of God? And how much more do we give up if we die by walking away? I want to exhort you as he does from verse 1 and 2, and we'll briefly make a few comments as we look at how he's using the old covenant comparison to the new as leverage to each one of us this morning about persevering beyond the economy, beyond acceptance, through difficulty. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Back in verse 1 where we begin this morning about an urgency to persevere. Notice the accent in verse 1 falls upon still stands. Therefore, let's read it this way, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, is what he's exhorting. Because again, the generation in Psalm 95 from Exodus 17, they died not entering. They died to the church who can hear the preaching of the Word now. The opportunity still stands. You're here. 
That's the usage of today, all throughout the text. Do you see there, he says the word today. It's urgency to you this morning and to me. Verse 7, he begins with Psalm. Today, if you hear his voice. It's a word of urgency. Verse 13, compared to that generation who already died outside, he says to the church, today, exhort one another. Look, he uses the same point of accent in emphasis in verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, he appoints a certain day, today. And then he quotes yet again the same verse that he has quoted earlier in his same argument with a word of urgency, today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So, there remains a rest. And the promise, verse 1, still stands. That is, He is exhorting the church this morning that by grace, we remain in a day of opportunity in reference to the eternal rest of God. We remain in a day of opportunity. In other words, if I could clarify, the rest that he is speaking of here isn't here in America. It isn't. Right? Let not your hearts be troubled. The economy, the jobs report our own personal income situation, the worry and concern over children, raising them in a difficult age, all the worries that go along with finance, perhaps maybe I should say just for schooling as I look out for many. Let not your hearts be troubled there remains, still stands the promise of entering the rest. Rest is not now in its fullness. And we not need worry to create a feeling of rest, an experience of rest through jobs, friends, family. Rest will not be found fully here. It can't be satisfied through material gain and consumption. That won't bring rest. Have you ever had that experience where you bought that very next item that was for sure to satisfy? And then, I don't know, a month later you had some more items in your Amazon cart. There you go. The promise still stands. There is a greater and ultimate rest that we cannot create for ourselves here. Consider to the church that was considering turning around. They were in fear of apostasy, turning their back on Christ and going back to the synagogue. That's who the original readers are. And he is exhorting them, rest is not here in Rome. It's not in belonging to the society at large, finally being accepted that won't give you rest. That's not the land of milk and honey. 
That's not it. Yeah, but it'll just be so much easier. It won't. How much more glory are you turning your back on? It won't be easier. It won't be better. If I just choose to run my life the way that I want to run it and follow the path of least resistance, that will not bring rest. Going back to the synagogue and getting out of some intensity and belonging yet again to a community of people that acknowledge your presence will not bring rest. At least not the kind of rest we're discussing. That has been promised since the days of exile and is now a reality in Christ. Turning on Christ to belong to a social, economic class or group will not bring rest to your soul. It still remains. We have a day of opportunity to enter. It isn't here. I thought of one last one just quickly as he points out from the text the return to Jerusalem. The days of Joshua were not the ultimate days of rest. If it were, Joshua would not have spoken of a day later on. Even being in Jerusalem is not a return to rest. He is exhorting the readers. The promise still remains. There is a day of rest. Don't turn around to create rest. Persevere by faith and the promise of God's rest. This rest then will ultimately be achieved by faith through Christ in the new heaven and the new earth in God. This is what he's speaking of later on, a day of rest in the new creation beyond this present age. How then do we find comfort and encouragement then if we're not to experience full measures of rest in this age? As this age is passing away, what will we find comfort and encouragement in? I would encourage you in Hebrews 13.5, we'll get there someday. 13.5, he says this to you this morning. How do you find comfort and encouragement, confidence in an age that is passing away if this age will not bring you comfort? How will you find comfort in it? Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. What is this possession that we have that, that brings contentment and comfort in this age that is passing away? Let not your heart be troubled, striving for rest, but find contentment and confidence in this promise of 13.5. He has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Then he continues in verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Where does my comfort come from? My confidence come from in Christ who is my helper and as finances come and then they go 
be content in this. By grace, He is my portion. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Rest is not to be found in gathering the items, but by faith in Christ. That's the contrast. That's what brings rest. But look at the opportunity. Let's consider next through our passage just the consideration of the opportunity. If it is that he is saying, while the promise of entering still stands, that is, we live in an age of opportunity, hearing. What is the opportunity that we still have? Let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Here is our opportunity that still stands. We live in this age of opportunity. What is the opportunity? Verse 2, for the gospel has come to us just as to them. What is the opportunity? The opportunity is described. The age of opportunity that we live in is an age of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, we remain in a time of opportunity. It still stands to do what? Hear the gospel. That's the opportunity. It came to us just as it came to them. The opportunity is to hear the word of the Lord. Specifically, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he exhorts you, don't just do this. La, 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 mentally. This isn't a duty, it's an opportunity that still remains for us to gather and hear the gospel. That's how he's exhorting us. So participate. But then he describes the participation because he says, yes, you live in a time of opportunity right now. This is 11.34. I'm running late today. I'm going to hit the fast forward in just a minute. 11.34 is opportunity. Right now, all of us, opportunity. Along with this opportunity comes a responsibility. This is what he's exhorting us, each one of us in hearing this opportunity. He exhorts us about our responsibility to this gracious opportunity. Look at the responsibility as it continues. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, here comes, from opportunity to responsibility. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. If you notice uh, there in the text, there is a very keen distinction that we need to mine out as we conclude our time together. Do you notice what he is uh, kind of teasing out there about you, the listener, um, right now? to each one of us in reading the text of Scripture and hearing it preached in this opportunity. Notice how he's mining out a keen distinction between hearing and listening. 
Verse 2, for good news came to us, justice to them. Opportunity, responsibility. The message they heard, so everyone's hearing it, they did not benefit them because they were, were not united by faith with those who not heard but listened. There is a keen distinction this morning among us between hearing and listening. I thought of an illustration for this of how I live with hearing and listening each and every day. That is, uh, in our house, what might make this clear? I might clout the issue. Hopefully this brings clarity. The distinction in our home between hearing and listening tends to function this way. We have uh, Charlotte, who is our youngest, and Claire living in the same room. Okay? And um, every single night, um, it's inevitable, just every single night, at some point in the night, usually the middle, uh, or whenever you're in deep sleep mode, that's when it occurs. Um, uh, Charlotte, our youngest, eight month, <clears throat> eight months old, makes a demand, makes a demand of Adrienne, right? So um, she, she demands, doesn't ask demands to have her needs met. So she begins making her demands somewhere in the middle of the night. And those demands are, are, are brought about through screaming, screaming, angry fits and wrath and rage, screaming. You'd think it can't occur with someone so little. It does. And uh, she makes her demands in the middle of the night, right? And, and as she does, there are two things occurring. There is a keen distinction between hearing and listening occurring. Claire, who is four, does not listen to it. She sleeps right through it. In the same room. And there, barely our neighborhood sleeps through it. Claire in the same room, right through it. That's it. She hears it, but she is blocking it out. It's going on in the room and she hears it. But it doesn't register for her. It's ambient noise at this point. When, and just to make my point, when we brought Charlotte home, you know the, the angry, wrathful yelling that children do versus that sweet little sound that like the two-day-old uh, Adam makes, that, the, the, the little noise. You think, oh, that's sweet. And then they're shaking their crib like this <laughs> and sobbing and angrily yelling at you. Explicit language. Were they old enough? That kind of attitude. <laughs> that kind of attitude. And it, 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 it transitions from that into that. When we brought her home, she no more than made a mouse squeak and all the children got up. What is that noise? Oh, it's a, a new baby. They make that noise. It was no more than a mouse squeak. Now she screams, demands, wrathfully yells at the family in the middle of the night and they all sleep. <laughs> because they're hearing it but they're not listening to it. It's transitioned from a mouse squeak to a wrathful yell that nonetheless has now become so conditioned to it, it's ambient noise. 
The distinction then comes for Adri. She's listening to it. It takes place. The cage is being rattled. The dragon has awoke. And mom listens to it. She hears it. And it consciously registers. I'm listening to it. Now the point of decision comes. Do I get up and address it? Act on it? Or do I let her do it for a better part of an hour? That only comes, decision, responsibility, action, follow through, only comes to the one who is listening. Because everybody in the house is hearing it. The difference then between hearing and listening is what he already told us in chapter 2, verse 1. Paying closer attention. A conscious effort to pay attention. That takes work. That takes commitment. That takes prayerful dependency. To pay attention. Versus hearing it. We must not, he's urging us, do not let the gospel, the good news that came to us just as it came to them, do not let the gospel become to you ambient noise. I gather and I hear it, but he exhorts you. Was it not those who heard who died in the wilderness? It's not enough to hear. We must listen. We must pay careful attention by faith. Come as an expectant people to the Lord's day. Lift your empty cup up high with expectation of it being filled by grace. Don't just come, for everyone can hear but we must listen. Lest we too, chapter 2, verse 1, drift away. Let us pray.